Hello, and welcome to Cool for Cats with me, Amy Hughes. We're inviting you in for black coffee and a chat about our favorite band, Squeeze. In this episode, I'm welcoming Adrian Simpson, a native of Maidstone, Kent, England. He is a mega Squeeze fan and has been described as knowing more about Squeeze than they do. Hello, Adrian. How are you? Hi, Amy. Great to hear from you. Um, I'm very wet at the moment. I've just come in from a very long uh, cycle ride, so I'm just trying to dry off. Um, I'm really looking forward to talking um, about about Squeeze, and, um, and that's a very, very kind quote you've used there, which I think was uh, from Glenn um, when he spoke to me on BBC Radio 2 about 20 years ago. Okay, yeah. So I found um, that description quite intriguing. So if you want to sort of give us a little bit of a backstory on that, that would be um, intriguing. <laughs> okay, yeah. Well, um, I mean, my sort of journey with Squeeze goes back to probably first hearing them when they released Electric Trains. Uh, around that time, my uh, my dad bought bought a satellite system. We had VH1 on, and they kept playing the video. And I quite sort of quite liked the song. I thought, well, I don't know who this band is. Um, and I sort of remember the name Squeeze from being associated with a milk advert um, for about 1992. So Squeeze uh, were, um, you know, uh, well, selling milk uh, effectively in the UK around that time. And it was one of the first adverts that had subtitles on. Um, so, or closed caption, um, I think you might call them over there. Um, so I learned all, all the words to that, that advert. Um, and then a few years later, uh, when studying for some exams, um, one of my friends said to me, you've got to listen to this album, you're really going to like it. And it was a cool, it was a, not cool for cats, it was a Squeeze Greatest Hits. And I remember listening to it over and over and over and over again, um, being completely uh, obsessed with it from, from that moment on. And then at that stage, I went round and bought every single Squeeze album I could find. And that was sort of before, before the days of the internet. So you used to have to go into record shops and, and find it. And then I started sort of trying to find anything I could on eBay. It was very early days of eBay. Um, and then one day, um, around that time, around the time Domino was out, I got a call from uh, my girlfriend at the time saying, you've got to switch on the radio, switch on Radio Kent now. And I switched it on, and it was uh, Glenn Tilbrook and, um, and Chris Difford, and they were saying, well, if you want to phone in and speak to them, you can. So I did. Um, and then we just sort of went over um, how excited I was to go and see them that night, uh, which was at the Leeds Cliff Hall in Folkestone. And I think um, we just had a chat, and I just randomly spurted out a lot of, random trivia about some of their songs which uh, they liked and Glenn said well Adrian you obviously know more about Squeeze uh, than we do and uh, you're welcome to come and meet us tonight and I actually went and met them so it's the first time I ever met Squeeze um, and got that uh, very nice quote there from Glenn. I appreciate that Glenn was so intuitive to the fact that you know he could just come straight out and 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 say something like that because I find that 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 happens a lot. If you'll probably agree with me, with not only Squeeze, but with a lot of other bands that have people that um, really enjoy their music, and then they start to go like super granular and dig around and start to find the things that you know they've obviously left behind twenty years ago. So, but uh, very nice. You need to get a T-shirt with that saying on it. I think. Oh, absolutely. Well, I'm hope. Well, I'm seeing them again on Saturday um, at uh, in in Hammersmith, and I'm not sure which shirt to wear, but that's a good idea. That I like that one. Yeah, then that way they can actually like you know see you and say, "Hey, Adrian, I remember that." <laughs> yeah, he did. I actually remember shouting at that uh, gig back in Folks and shouting at to, to Chris Difford that uh, 
said, remember me from Radio Kent? And then he did say, look, there's someone here from Radio Kent in the audience. I think, I think he thought I was one of the DJs or something like that. I didn't quite realise I was that sort of obsessive fan that had spoken to them earlier that day. But uh, it got me backstage in the end, so uh, all's well that ends well, as Squeeze might say. Yes, exactly. Today, was it Deford tomorrow? Uh, today, Deford tomorrow the world, yeah. Yeah. So you and I have been going back and forth um, in our correspondence before this podcast recording, and we both came up with the idea to talk about Frank. And I think most people, most squeeze aficionados, would agree that Frank is pretty much overlooked. There's a lot of good stuff on it. Um, there's It gets kind of sour in the backstory of the actual promotions, um, the tour that happened with Frank. I can tell you as a fact that I did see the band a number of times on that tour. And it felt to me after I talked with the person I was going with at that time that they did seem off um, a little bit because I'd seen them one or two times before that. So so let's kind of sort of talk about, about its overallness and would you agree, and I hope you would, that generally overall, the album is just, it's just great. It feels very natural. Um, there doesn't seem to be a real clunker to me in the whole, in the whole scheme of things. Oh, it feels like a very honest, earthy, live album, I think is probably the way, the way I would describe it. Uh, it does feel like there, there, there is that back to basics feel to it because it followed on from Babylon and on that was just their big sort of Hollywood album a big sort of stomping loud uh, lots of production on Babylon and on and this one sort of just sounds like they're playing in a pub uh, the drums sound even very very raw they've got this this sort of very live feel and pace to it but it is such a spectacular album just all the way through it's just feels like they they're they just want to get back to basics again. They just want to be back to being like a live band, um, writing those good, honest songs. You know, there's some real, real um, relatable lyrics on there as well, isn't it? You know, things like Can of Worms, um, even Rose I Said, you know, they're, they're, they're just believable, honest, uh, quality songs. And the, 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 the way it was overlooked and it was, you know, not, not many Squeeze fans even were able to get it at the time, I understand. I think some of them had to go through Malora, you can just pop into like your local record store and it would be there. It just feels like, it feels like, a, like an end of an era album for Squeeze. I, I don't know why. Do you feel that, Amy? Well, I believe that for me, the entire album feels very up and poppy. Um, as f <laughs> this, is a this is really a good one. Rolling Stone, I went back and looked at a couple of other um, reviews say is the uh, of that time and speaking in context of that time they said basically the whole album is a in quotes sturdy collection okay so i didn't know they were carpenters but whatever and uh, if it's love which was the first single they say if it ain't broke don't fix it mm -hmm. um and i'm wondering if that's just a hearkening back to um hourglass but I, I look at the generality, the whole of it, as a very up album, comparative to what was sort of coming on the horizon. We can look at that in hindsight. So um, I think it was a nice continuation of Babylon and On, but 
Yeah, I think in hindsight, we both can agree that it was just, there were sort of um, very weird vibes that were kind of going through, even if you didn't know it. How would you how would you categorize that? I think so. You can you can you can feel there's a little bit of a tension there between um, Chris and Glenn. Um, if you see, there's a, a YouTube uh, documentary called um, I think it's called Frankly Speaking, um, and there's one bit there where they're interviewing Glenn and Chris. I think in the in in, in the in the pub, the the Yorkshire Grey, and even the way they're standing together uh, looks very, they look very distant from each other. Um, that there's this sort of, say, underlying sort of tension um, to them both, that they're almost just a bit, slightly a bit fed up, maybe fed up with the state of, uh, the, I don't know, the record industry maybe, the way things were going, where perhaps A&M had put a, a lot of money into uh, Babylon and on. I think it was something like a million pounds to record that album. And then you've moved on to Frank, where it was being recorded in this uh, place called the Chocolate Factory in New Cross, um, and you know, they're, they're, one of their friends was making the sandwiches instead of them going out to these big, big dinners. There were ants crawling out the mixing desk. And um, as, as I sent you earlier, Amy, I found out there was even a jacuzzi in the recording studio um, down, in, down in New Cross. Um, so I think it went maybe at the time they, they were perhaps feeling a bit, I don't know, maybe a bit unloved, um, where they, you know, they were perhaps writing what they felt was some of their best material, uh, you know, lyric-wise, absolutely fantastic lyrics on there you know like like love circles and uh you know pace and place i mean all of them all of them are fantastic lyrics and and they just that's why you felt a bit tired a bit a bit fed up and you say with hindsight i mean you had some fantastic place around the corner which feels again like a very i mean that's a, another hour we could talk all day about but that's a, that's got another kind of uh different different feel to it and that's a i think that's another kind of up album as well but yeah it definitely feels like a Enough. There's a happy, bright, poppy album compared to say something like Cosy Fan Tootie Fruity, which uh, just does feel a bit depressing at times. I know because the feeling that I got when I watched Frankly Speaking back in the day was I was joyful because I was getting to see a different side of the band. I was getting to see them more on their home ground, and which is very, very rare for a band that had been around you know, for, for quite a few years. And I, but now again, of course, looking in hindsight, I look at the structure of their tone, of their body language. Um, I know for sure that it just felt like a little bit of a rumbling along with Jules. And I know that's unfair to categorize him because he is a much uh, dynamic, he's, he has a much more dynamic personality than the rest of the band. And I think that that's obviously, that was just a well-known fact. Um, but the way that he kind of downplayed where they were rehearsing, um, the answers to the off-camera questions that were coming, um, they tried to be humorous. And I was really, after I watched it again recently, um, I do agree with you that there was just some tiredness that was going on. And it's sad be to think that we think that now because we feel that the album is just wonderful, right? Would you say that? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, yeah, I think Jules's comments, you say perhaps in the benefit of looking back now, do seem a bit, uh, maybe a bit acidic um, at times. Um, maybe he's having a little bit of a, um, a bit of a dig at where they are and, and you know, where they, you know, he mentioned things like Madison Square Gardens, and then you see him sort of rehearsing in um, uh, sort of pubs um, in 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 South East London. Perhaps, 
because at that stage, I think Jules's career was was really, really taking off. I, mean, I, I don't remember at the time. I was only seven when uh, Frank was released, so I don't remember much about what was on uh, sort of television and and where sort of society was at that stage. But I, I sort of doing a lot of research into in, into Frank. He, sort of at the time feel that um Jules really Jules Hart wasn't really into this album. I mean just look at the the inlay where you've got blank you've got the blank photo. So they um I'm sure many people listening to podcasts have seen the album, but if you haven't, there's a uh, sort of part of the inlay shows them the band's gone to different locations to have their passport photo taken. So you've got like Glenn Glenn's at a branch of boots, you've got Chris who's in a Ashford post office, and then there's just a blank, literally a blank space where Jules was, but it sort of says Jules was on holiday. And I do wonder if that's a bit of a bit of a tongue-in-cheek. Um perhaps dig at dig at Jules for him not being um fully commit, maybe not fully committed to the band at that stage and just wanting to to go and do his TV career. Cause I know they could they couldn't tour on I think it's Thursdays and Friday evenings because Jules was was inevitably recording somewhere. So I think that was just all that together, and and you know Chris perhaps just wasn't wasn't feeling it, and Glenn certainly. I, I feel like Glenn from that documentary, the Frankly Speaking documentary, that Glenn really wasn't feeling it at that stage. Um, and it's really sad because you listen to it now, you really wouldn't guess if you sort of put it on and and you didn't really know squeeze like like we all do he's perhaps playing it to a friend you know we can listen to it and go yeah there's oh it's definitely it's definitely something rumbling on un- underneath there i don't feel like it's a it's this happy squeeze ship at the moment but put it on someone they go oh yeah well hopefully they'll go oh these are good tunes you know this is a, a nice upbeat number and this is something you can tap your foot along to right and there were sort of these weird um it's like a dichotomy you know trying to manage you know, a visual with what you hear, because a lot of those songs, um, actually, I feel that the whole entire album was just paced correctly, or the sequencing of the album was paced impeccably. It made so much sense when you uh, run Peyton Place, Rose I Said, Slaughtered, Gutted, and Heartbroken. Um, it just, it just works. And that's the weird thing is that they the mindset probably of their producer, which was Eric Thorngren and, and, and Glenn, you know, Mr. Captain of the ship probably had a lot to do with that as well. And I felt that Jules's uh, contribution, Dr. Jazz really hit at the note of, of where his heart was and probably, yeah, still is. So yeah, the visuals just really, you know, to condense it didn't marry up with the um the audio <laughs> yeah I, th- I think there's definitely a flow to this album isn't it where um yeah you know it's sort of you say the pace the the pace of the songs so you got some really fast songs on there things like i mean rose i said is just incredibly fast and like melody motel but then they, they sort of almost blend in quite nicely to some of the slower tracks like um uh, like can of worms uh, which is you know a very chilled out track on the album, doesn't it? It feels like that's almost like a pause on it. Um, it feels like that sort of little bit where almost like the band are relaxing a little bit more and just going along with something that's quite light uh, musically. Um, yeah, so I think it's just it's just a, a great album pace wise, and it just just feels it's just a, a good one to have on. Um, you, you know, I mean, I don't, you can't have it really have it on in the background just as background music. She gets so involved in that album. Do you, do you find that that when it's on, you have to almost stop what you're doing and listen to it and just enjoy it and observe and absorb the music and the words to it? 
it definitely to me feels like a run a run through a you know a, a story or a feeling or 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 a theme where again we have that sort of classic possibly downbeat lyrics and tone in in that sense in the verbal sense but you've rescued it with Glenn's upbeat poppy melodies which do actually like you just said actually you just nailed it on the head you can't have this thing in the background you're really paying attention and there are two things that I actually like on this album which you know we're good I said we're going to go back and forth on this we're not going to go like <laughs> um the first thing that you hear is this like 15 second intro that's been labeled Frank but I think you probably know what that is. Do you know what that is? Um, Frank is so Frank. I think that the title itself it was Gilson's dog uh, at the time, but I think the actual thing sounds the actual track Frank. If you want to call it a track or or sample, whatever it is, or snippet, it's yeah, it's just a sort of back and forth between I think Jules Gilson uh, and and I'm, I think it's Eric, uh, and I, I think there's a slight slight laugh, a very a very subtle laugh from I think it's Glenn. It sounds like it's got a Tilbrook laugh to it um well i think just after where they say uh i think faffy does uh jules says that and yeah you hear that it's a, it's a very odd way to begin an album isn't it where you've just got this talk back between the, the studio box um i mean it's sort of sense it's quite humorous i suppose isn't it and um sort of paints the picture of the you know a, a gang of uh a gang of southeast london lads having a laugh in the pub in a, in a, sorry having a laugh in the pub about to play some music and it's 15 seconds of, like you said, this sort of disconnected, um, out of context uh, talking, although you have uh, Jules calling somebody fatty. And I think it was maybe he was directing it at Gilson. And of course, Gilson was not overweight at that time. He had actually got himself into shape. You know, he had been a raging alcoholic most of the career of Squeeze up until Babylon and on. And it seems like he's a little bit of a sensitive soul. I mean, are we reading too much into this? Um, and he says something like, I'm not fat, you know, and then it's like, I take it back, I take it back, which is what Joel says. Yes, I think there's there's quite a lot of these sort of, um, I think throughout Frank, a lot of these sort of talk back, these little snippets of conversation, not just on the album, but on, on the on the B sides as well. So you've got things like there's a, there's like a party going on at the end of um, Rose I Said, and then you've got uh, a little bit of a, French speaking at the end of I think it's uh, Red Light. You got Glenn and Chris laughing along there, and then Frank's bag, uh, the B side to If It's Love. There's a little bit of conversation there going on. Um, so I think it seems a bit of a there's a bit of a theme around that. Um, yeah, I'd love to know love to know why they made that decision to keep that to keep that in. I mean, what what I say? So what does it add? But I suppose it just sort of sets a little bit of the tone um, for the album. This sort of you know, you wouldn't get something like that on Babylon and on that's sort of polished and 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 very clean, and and you can see Glenn's perfectionist tendencies coming out um, on on, um, on well, on most of the albums, but certainly on Babylon and on, where it's just very, very highly polished, um, highly sequenced. Whereas this one is just, you know, say you've got a, a mixing desk where there are ants crawling out of it. <laughs> Um, and you've got them sort of calling each other fat. It's it's a it's a. I like it. I mean, I've always, I, I, I sort of before I got the album. Uh, I mean, I really struggled to find this album um, about twenty years ago. Say the days before you sort of internet was uh, was well adopted. But I did find a very bizarrely find a, found a copy of it in my local library, um, and and I uh, 
imagine the thought, so what is this Frank track going to be? Is it going to be, you know, a story about someone called Frank? You know, at that stage, I was sort of quite early on into my squeeze obsession and, you know, I knew that there was a lot of these sort of kitchen sink songs. I think it's about a character called Frank, a bit like Tommy um, or Sonny, as it became on um, on a Cradle to the Grave. But no, it's just this this uh, banter uh, between, between yeah, I, I think I certainly think it's Gilson. Um, I'm almost certain it's Gilson there. I believe so. It just sounds kind of like he's kind of like, oh, you know. Yeah, so it's like gruff, uh, slight, slight, there's a slight element of anger to it. Right. And I know that, like you said, it's supposed to be a little bit of a banter and, you know, these guys have been together for, for so long, um, which dovetailed nicely into Frank's bag, which, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, right, it, in the original release, it was not on there. It's resurfaced, uh, it resurfaced kind of like in two forms. It was, um, I think I remember the first time I heard it because it was the B-side of it, of the If It's Love single. Correct. But it got a little bit of resurgence on the 2007 remastered uh, CD. So that thing just, it just blows you away because it's, they unless somebody just like you say flip the recording button switch and they just you know say basically you know well who's gonna start you know and he's like all right i'll you know jules is like all right i'll start you know which and if let me let me let me cut myself off a moment so here we have this perception of the band uh being very off the cuff being very um you know together as a as a as a group of guys uh, able to joke, uh, able to whip off these, imp- you know, seemingly improvised pieces, uh, instrumentals. But what's going on, really, like you said, is that um, Jules is sort of popping in, adding his stuff, and then popping back out. And that can seem like a real um, misnomer to a lot of people because he had come back into the band, he'd been with the band, and then something something was going on. You know, like you say, his popularity, they always had felt like, well, we don't want to ride on the coattails of Jules um, because now that he's on TV and he's presenting and this, that, and the other thing. But yeah, that's like a weird you you look back on it and you're just going, man, these guys are just nailing it. And then you find out what's going on. You're like, wow, they can do that. And yet still have this uh, resigned attitude. You're like, yep, that's, that's Jules. We'll take them whenever, whenever we can get them, you know? Yeah. I mean, he's pop. Yeah. As you say, he pops in and out of the band so many times. And at one stage, uh, I think, one of Glenn was asking, it might be Glenn or it might be Chris asked what is they want for the band. And I think they said a keyboard player of loyalty. Uh, I may have slightly misquoted that, um, but there is also, I don't know if you heard about this uh, story um, about when they were touring during the Frank period. And um, uh, it looked like, um, I think uh, Jules has had his head, head in his head in his hands while he's playing the piano. And Chris th- thought that, uh, you know, he was, uh, that Jules was playing around and pretending to be asleep. And he actually looks and, Jules was actually falling asleep playing the piano, but was still managing to play with one hand. Uh, so, so at that stage, I think Jules probably felt as being stretched all, all, all across across all oil areas. He's trying to, you know, keep come, well, come back, um, come back to squeeze, and particularly, I mean, his his impact on the Frank album is is just incredible. Things like the the solo on on Peyton Place is just like. That's something else, isn't it? It's like a man possessed of the keys. 
um, and even on even on the B sides, even on um, things like Red Light, which aren't particularly sort of piano intensive, you can really hear his his influence there. Um, and it's a shame because I think that was probably his um, his last input into into Squeeze, wasn't it? I think after that um, he left, and then there were various other keyboard players, including, of course, later on his younger brother uh, Chris Holland, who was uh, the keyboard player during the uh, I think during the Domino period. So there's still some of the the Holland family influence there. Yeah, exactly. In fact, even further back, uh, Chris came in, uh, Chris Holland, Jules's younger brother, and came in and worked on Cozy Fan um, and did some keyboard work because um, I had discussed in a previous podcast the fact that when the band went to France to record that album with Laurie Latham, there was a little bit of a <clears throat> playful altercation between um, Jules and Glenn, and um, that ended up being that Jules like severed a tendon in his finger, and he couldn't play. Yeah. Yes. So, so Chris Christopher came in and 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 filled in uh, adequately and brilliantly. I must say they are they are definitely cut from the same cloth. But you're right. I mean, here's here's a, a wonderful track that got uh, no official release back in the day, but came back was um, Good Times Don't Bring Me Down. And Jules is masterful. I mean, there's so much heart and soul and feeling in that song. I just wonder what what happened. I mean, it's like almost the antithesis of, of Dr. Jazz, where you're expecting, you know what I mean? You're expecting that boogie-woogie that he's known for. And then he does this, and it's just like, whoa, I got to sit back in my chair and think about this one. Yeah, it's an it's an unusual track that one, isn't it? It's, it's almost um, sort of like in its demo format. Uh, it doesn't feel like very polished production wise, but performance wise, it's like a, a almost like a. You can imagine them in a blues club, can't you? Doing that, um, and that's one of the great things about Squeeze. They can just dip in and out of a lot of genres without sounding like they're doing pastiches and, and spoofs. Uh, it's just it's just such a good good range of you know, musical abilities that, that the band have. And, that, and they sound convincing. They never sound like they're novelty. They never sound like they're you know, trying to be someone else. Even even the covers, even um, even like Red Light. So I don't know if you've heard the original Red Light by Meryl Moore. It's from the, it's from the 50s. Have you heard it? I have not, no. Oh, it's, it's worth listening to. So it, it's, it, I expect it to sound exactly like the... Uh, the squeeze version, but I, I, I listened to it, and the the, the original version here yeah, is sort of quite slow placed, slow paced. Um, this sort of like bar bar sound to it, whereas the squeeze version has got this sort of real kind of rock and roll feel to it. It's almost like rockabilly sound, um, and just got this really fast pace to it. Got all these hand claps at the end of it that they've added, and then there's that very strange sample at the end that I like. It sounds like um, someone slowing down a, a, a French record. And you've got Glenn and Chris's very distinctive laughs. It's one of my favourite moments of Squeeze, that, where you just hear them laughing together. Um, you hear this real sort of camaraderie between the two. And you can imagine them having a lot of fun producing that song and just putting that strange sample at the end of it. It's interesting, too, that with this album, there are those, mom- there are those moments that are just like, we, I guess like you were right, we can only call them snippets or um, why did they do this like, um, this could be the last time. It's like a one of the few that I can think of that has a fade in um, beginning, and then it's like you hear all of this sort of um, sort of 
off kilter kind of um, everybody's uh, going, uh, 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 you know, starting <laughs> off <laughs> like that. Yes. Uh, strange time uh, signatures that are going on, and yet they manage to make that sound like, eh, let's just, you know, whip this one off in one take, right? Yeah, they don't. They don't like that. That's um, Squeeze themselves, or Glenn and Chris at least, aren't particularly happy with that song, and they. I think they feel that that's a bit of a filler um, song. But even Squeeze filler is still amazing, isn't it? It just goes to show you the power of this of their songwriting, their performance. A uh, yeah, very strange faded intro. They they like to do a bit with fading in and out on this album. I noticed um, Love Circles, of course, has that bit at the end, doesn't it? Where it fades out and then it fades into this sort of uh solo bit where you got almost like they left left the recording going on but I, i've got no idea why they fade that one out and in again but um sorry to jump around a little bit there but to go back to uh this could be the last time that's got sort of elements of um sort of barbershop style backing vocals at point isn't it and um and sort of glenn, glenn i think when he said he when he was singing it he thought he was being roy orbison um when he when he was singing that and doing the sort of up and down things that, that roy does but I don't think they're particularly particularly impressed with that song. Um, but another thing I like about that one is the, the guitar solo in it has got this sort of real backward sound to it, almost like they've just put all these effects on it. And it's quite unusual in the sound because there's not many guitar effects um, compared to some of the other albums. It's quite a clean guitar sound. With a, There's a little bit of chorus in there. There's a little bit of delay on things like Rose I Said. But other than that, this is the one where I'm like, wow, listen, listen to Glenn's guitar. He's sort of... Going back to his uh, Cosy Fan Tutti Fruity days of all the of all the pedals in front and all the sequences running away, it's uh, it's a joy to listen to that song. I, I, I like it, and um, there's a really good cover version of it on YouTube. It's quite hard to find, but someone's done a really, really, really good version of it. I really like to find that one out too, because I'll put it on the uh, on the podcast uh, website definitely for people who could because. Let's face it, Squeeze does not get covered too much. <laughs> uh, for whatever reason, it's kind of sad. Um, so, yeah, definitely, we'll uh, we'll get that up there as uh, if we can. Yeah, there's also another um, another cover version of Love Circles, uh, which is done by um, a guy who's done a very sort of laid back uh, acoustic version, which I'll, I'll send you a link of as well. Um, so there are there are a few um, obscure tracks on this album that have been covered. Not uh, I thought people would go for ones like um, "If It's Love," which is probably the the biggest, um, most obvious sort of choice of a of a song with mass market appeal, um, which you know, they did did try and release um, as a single, but didn't get very far into the charts. Um, uh, like many squeeze songs, unfortunately. Um, but I, I mean, I particularly I think my 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 favourite song in this whole album has got to be Love Circles. Um, that is a brilliant. Oh, that is my probably my second favourite squeeze song of all time. And I would have to say it's got some tremendous, outstanding um, guitar work from Glenn in the middle part of the song. He just shreds it. I mean, it's it's kind of like he just took like a piece of metal and used that as his pick, like this long two by four of metal and just went sonic on that solo. Um, and it's it's kind of, again, this mishmash of this uh, Chris being a little bit more laid back in his delivery, kind of the tiredness that you can hear in his voice. And there's some bright poppy bits in there from like, you know, a synthesizer. And then Glenn comes out of nowhere, like he just flies in 
with this shredding of his guitar. Um, it's just it's spectacular. I mean, it, it's just so spectacular. It's it's a, it's one of those uh, moments where the, the squeeze lyrics and and music just go over and above anything else. Uh, just the, the lyrics to that are so sweet. They're they're so relatable. There's lots of little details in there. Um, and quite unusually for a squeeze song, it kind of gets the bulk of the lyrics out very early in the song. I think you're up to the last verse by about sort of two two and a half minutes into the song, so you've kind of got two and a half minutes left of um, like that shredding uh, guitar, like you say, and and lots of musical um, bits where it goes up and down, it goes around, it fades out, it comes back, it then does this sort of very nice, very pleasant delayed reverb guitar that then fades down um it's just it's just spectacular that song i, I just remember hearing it for the first time and and, and being absolutely blown away by it. it it was it was on the so it's on the end of squeeze greatest hits of course uh which was the say the very first squeeze album i listened to and you you know you had, you had all these really great tracks um and then and there was all this quirky one at the end that was sung sung by the guy who sang Call for Cats, and it was really different to all the other songs. It was a lot longer. Um, the, the the singing, the vocal style, Chris's vocal style was very, very different, as you say, quite maybe a little bit tired sounding, um, quite quite um, flat, and I mean that in, in a complimentary way, and compared to sort of, you know, Glenn's vocals on things like, you know, No Place Like Home and, um, you know, last time forever. You just just had this sort of very quirky song where there's these sweet little details, you know, the matching dressing gowns, you know, putting the putting the phone back on the hook. Um, and I just can't skip it. It's, it's that song where where you know, I, I, if I if I've got ten minutes to listen to a few squeeze songs, it will be one one of the ones I listen to. Um, although if you've got ten minutes, it's going to take up half. So you could probably only listen to a couple of other songs in that time, um, but it, it's 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 a great song, and I'm I'm slightly surprised they they picked that one as a single, um, and the second single from from Frank. Um, but it doesn't really uh, as much as I love it. Um, I'm not sure how much sort of mass market appeal it has. I would think something like she doesn't have to shave, um, which which is a bit more mainstream. I think would have would have got it, um, even if the subject matter is is slightly unusual. Um, but of course, as, uh, as you might know, Amy, the, the third single from the album was supposed to be uh, "She Doesn't Have to Shave" um, after "Love Circles," but "Love Circles" unfortunately didn't didn't do didn't do well at all. Um, it, it's also extremely hard to find um, single. Um, if you if you do get the single version, it has uh, there is a very slightly edited version of of the song, which misses out the fantastic fade bit at the end and also um, cuts short one of the uh one of the solo bits um very very badly i've got to add you can hear it where the tape jumps which is very unusual for squeeze but um that shows probably uh how little the the record company at the time actually cared about the song cared about promoting that they were sort of allowing kind of sloppy things like that to happen yeah and i know that a lot of these sort of weird vibes that are that we're talking about definitely um if we go off track for a moment emanate from the um perception of what are we going to do with this band you know they're they're not the cool for cats band that that a&m signed you know back in 77 um they've progressed along they had a great hit with tempted but it's wasn't sung by one of the guys that we know of in the band it was paul carrick dropping in 
coming back off. And then, you know, there was the long sort of um, break in that in 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 the audience perception, and then um, cozy fan. Well, you know, we've talked about that many many times. <laughs> Yes. So we'll ignore that. We'll just ignore that one just for a moment. And then you get back to Babylon and on, and uh, they're on the uphill. They're uphill for that. So you would think that with Frank, it's like, we're going to capitalize on Babylon and on. And again, they've the, the thing that I've always talked about with people who uh, were raised in Britain at that time period is you don't really want to be forceful. It's like, well, you know, they're do they know what they're doing and yeah. we did our bit, so they must know what they're doing and then they don't do it. Yeah, I think it's uh, it, it's it's um, criminal how badly this this whole album was sort of marketed and promoted. And I think, as you say, Amy, there was sort of a slight apathy towards towards a band like yeah the the album will sell themselves you know everyone 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 knows hourglass everyone knows call for cats and, and up the junction over here so we'll, we'll let we'll let uh we'll let the album find its way into people's homes and of course the sad thing was it, it didn't um i mean even at the time you know uh i think fan club members had to sort of order it through through mail order um and you know they just sort of dropped dropped them straight after this album because i think at the time a&M was sold, I think, to, to Polygram um, for quite a substantial sum of money. And, and uh, Polygram perhaps looked at the, the, the figures for some, of the, for some of the albums. And even though Babylon and On cost a lot of money to produce and, and to market, it perhaps didn't quite deliver, the, even that didn't quite deliver the chart success that perhaps uh, the, the new company was expecting. Um, and then, yeah, and then, then, then there's this very sad situation where, you know, the band are perhaps feeling tired, feeling a bit, to, a bit jaded, not seeing, not seeing any marketing go into their album, not seeing, uh, you know, the record company supporting them, you know, releasing uh, sort of gimmicky singles. So by gimmicky singles, I mean that at the time the CD singles released on three inch uh, CD singles. So if it's love and um, love circles are both um, in these sort of lovely little card sleeves, and I love the covers. I love I love all the artwork of Frank, where you've got the 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 you know the tortoise on the front and then you've got the the goldfish uh for if it's love and of course the the, the lovely budgery guards um looking at each other but they were being put out on these little three inch cd singles that you had to have an adapter to to listen to um and, and I, i'm i mean i'm really glad they decided not to call it a day uh, at that stage otherwise we wouldn't have had obviously some fantastic place and and, and all the other uh well and then ridiculous and then domino after that um so it's good that the band did did stick by it. If there's ever a time for Squeeze to split yet again, I'm guessing it would have been at the end of Frank when when they're sort of staring down this abyss of just this sort of sad part of a uh, rock and roll where perhaps they might be feeling a bit unloved. Which of course they're not. You know that they, they Squeeze fans are fiercely loyal, of course. And you know once you get into Squeeze, you never really drop out of them, do you? They're they're, all, they're always. You know, you're always on the lookout for what they're what they're doing next. And it's a it's a happy state of affairs that actually they continued on because uh, I realized when I when I saw them at that time uh, when they were promoting Frank, it you know the the musicianship was there. It totally nailed um, you know the sort of uh, stage presence that you expected, and it was a little bit of a strange era for the band to be in because now they're older, but the, um, 
the the scene that was happening there for us here in the States was alternative. And that's when we started to see a little bit of the rise from Seattle with, uh, you know, Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. But they also, A&M also had um, Robin Hitchcock. And I interviewed Robin when um, he was putting out um, So You Think You're In Love, the song for that. And he also had the same mindset. It's, it feels like it, but he's he's more outspoken. Um, and he was in the same league as, as Squeeze, where he knew that it was just going to be college radio that was going to help him um, become more uh, visible. And it felt like the alternative music scene had their um, godfathers. And maybe that's the problem was that A&M at the time certainly wanted to, um, you know, do something with these guys. And they, and they knew they could get radio play, uh, like I said, again, because of the influx of these uh, younger bands. They were sort of opening up people's eyes and they weren't the mainstream bands like R.E.M., who you could still kind of consider alternative, but they had really exploded and were arena um, type of of a band, so we have Squeeze, kind of in that middle that middle part of their of their era, where they're not quite um, you know shredding it in the in the sense that they're they're young kids and they got to make a noise, but also you know they're not backsliding either into um, I guess uh, it would be called like adult contemporary if uh, if you know if you know those terms. <laughs> Yes, I haven't, I haven't heard that one that term for a while, but yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, that Godfather term that you use is really interesting because that that came up again in about 1995. So when Squeeze released Ridiculous, uh, there, there were a lot of uh, media titles around them being the Godfathers of Britpop, which uh, I think Glenn Chris felt was incredibly condescending, um, but uh, was used by uh, I'm not going to I can't say if it was the record company, but certainly was used. Um, in marketing around that time, trying to cash in on the Britpop phenomenon, which which I do remember. Um, I do remember as, as a teenager that being absolutely massive. So you've got like Blur, Oasis, um, Pulp as well, these kind of bands. And, uh, you know, people were linking them to Squeeze and saying, that, you know, Squeeze has sort of been doing that, almost that Britpop, that very sort of uh, very British sound, you know, that bit between perhaps like the Who and the Kinks and then you've got Squeeze in the middle and then you've got Blur, Oasis and Pulp sort of at the end of it. And, you know, come on, everyone, come and listen to Squeeze. But that was another example, I think, of where the marketing perhaps didn't didn't do Squeeze any justice. I mean, just sort of thinking like when This Summer was released. So uh, This Summer, of course, uh, released in 1995, but it was released really late on. So it was released when sort of the kids were going back to school, and it was the end of a the end of the end of the British summer. Um, and, and you know, it's far too late for a song like this summer to come out, which of course is a nice poppy uh, summery song. Um, so I think throughout Squeeze's career, certainly in that um, perhaps after the Cool for Cats kind of period, um, they, they were sort of their marketing never really fitted anywhere. They weren't, you know, they weren't particularly. They're not a niche band, and they do have wide appeal but I think things like they they are I mean I, I see them great to hear what, what your opinion is from over the other side of the pond but you know they, they were very very British band very British in their sound and their their sort of image um I mean the the, the lyrics are the lyrics are you know a pure kind of like Nick Hornby 
um, sort of style of of sort of British prose. So I think they've always sort of they've always sort of struggled with that. Um, although now I think think now look at the, the, the new squeeze or the squeeze that, that's there now. I mean they're kind of you know beating all that now. They're now you know really big here. You know a lot of people know who Squeeze were. I remember sort of back in the Domino days when I'd sort of be talking to friends about music and saying you know this band called Squeeze and no one had heard of them now pretty much everyone has heard of them and they're able to back at that time construct um these songs that really just motored along like um Rose I said it just from start to finish just took off and yes you have like those kind of like we were saying sound effects snippets that came on at the end of that uh but then it just kind of glided into slaughtered gutted and heartbroken which was kind of like this soft shoe shuffle um sort of the perspective of what has just previously happened yeah. in the other song and now we're hearing the repercussions and that requires to me a lot of intellectual uh thought about what is our audience going to um extract from the sequencing of these songs and like you said you just cannot have this stuff on in the background without actively participating especially um with the way that chris uh intones uh the lyrics and the way everybody especially gilson just does this wonderful stuff with the uh with the brushes and of course jules is just just gorgeous you know on the keyboard yeah there's another, there's another point isn't there in the album where you've got this sort of loud to quiet bit which is um you've got melody motel going into can of worms um and i i think those two those two pairs where you've got um rose i said a slaughtered gut and heartbroken and uh melody motel and can of worms um you've got this sort of almost got one song that's i think personally feel feels very british and one song that's very american um on both sides so you've got like I think sort of gut and heartbroken to me feels like a like an American song, um, whereas Rose I said feels uh, very British. And then you've got uh, I think um, you know Can of Worms, which is you know very sort of almost up the junction kind of British kitchen sink observational song uh, that was preceded by Melody Motel, which is just pure American, probably their most American sounding song. I mean, uh, what a, what a song that is! And and uh, like Rose I said, it's fast, it's punchy, Gilson's. Gilson's an absolute fire on on those fast songs, isn't he? He's really hitting those hit, hitting hitting the hitting those snares, and it creates that sort of unique um, sound that's on um, that's on Frank. That sort of popping snare sound is the only way I can describe it. You, you can instantly hear it and go that you know if you don't know Frank that well, uh, you go oh that's a Frank song. It's a bit like Cosy Fan Tootie Fruity is the other one where you hear it, hear a certain snippet of song go. I can tell straight away what album that one's from. Yeah, that's uh, that that's got that popping snare. That's going to be that's a Gilson Labour special from from Frank. And what he does on Rose, I said, just he is the engine behind a lot of what's going on because I you you nearly feel with Glenn's delivery that he's going to be running out of breath yes. because he has to deliver <laughs> he has to deliver the lyrics at such a fast pace, which you know he can only describe it because you know he wrote the melody, and yeah. <laughs> I. I suppose he decided the pace of this song has just got to go like 120 miles an hour. Um, and it still has remained one that they don't play that often. And I'm not sure why, unless, of course, it's just because it's a mouthful. Yeah, it's it's, it's not 
technically, um, music-wise, I don't think it's that complicated. Like, it's not something like um, Letting Go that, that is chords all over the place. And I know um, Chris sometimes struggles with some of the more complicated um, chord changes. Sorry, Chris, if you're listening. I haven't offended you there. Um, but I know that, like Rose, I said, it is hasn't got that many chords in it. It's quite straightforward music-wise. I mean, you've got Glenn doing that sort of uh, nice over-the-top riff, um, but there's not that, that many chords in it. I think, yeah, I think it's the, the delivery. I mean, it's, it's 110 miles an hour, that one, isn't it? And it's, and it's all, all very, very fast-paced, and there's lots of visions in there. I mean, there's even some – it's unusually for a squeeze song. There's even a line, I think, that doesn't rhyme, uh, which is, you know, I swallowed, swallowed my sandwich and picked up her boots. Uh, which is which it see, always seems to me slightly out of place that bit. I, I, I don't know why that's uh, why it's in there. I guess it's one of those ones that's quite hard to rhyme. But I'd, I, I'd love I'd love to know the story behind that. <laughs> and Chris's words are just outstanding. You you, it's like you almost miss it because um, Glenn is is doing it so quickly. And there's just such imagery in this song, like you're inhabiting him as as far as what's going on in his mind, the fact that he's, uh, like he's noted, you know, picking at the bread stuck in his teeth. I mean, who comes up with <laughs> those lines, you know? It's the detail, isn't it? And, you know, she works in an office as an article clerk and she heard it different from a friend she met today who said she saw us kissing down and anyway. And, and just those, those images. I mean, when I hear that song, I always uh, I always think of it as occurring in, in the same area that pay, where Pace and Place is, because, uh, of course, you know, Pace and Place is a real place in Greenwich. It's just down the road from King George Street. So if you were ever doing like a mini squeeze tour of that area, you, you can walk from one to the other. And there's a... There's a, there's a there's a road near there, I think, called Bernie Street. And I think there's an alleyway down there somewhere. And I sort of imagine it happening down there. Um, you sort of imagine this sort of little play uh, or a musical of, of of some of these songs where it's just so visual and it's the, the, the micro levels of detail there. You know, the things like, you know, the drawers left half open and her, her clothes laying near. And you, it's just, it's a, a classic Chris Difford lyric. I mean, it's fucking... It's like an up the junction level, I think, of of lyric writing that one, and it's it's such a it's such a fun song to hear. And um, there's that live version, isn't there, on the Frankly Speaking documentary, and uh, so you get to sort of hear it how it how it was how it would have been live. And it's a real it's a real shame that it doesn't doesn't go in the set, but uh, you know they are putting some some interesting less played songs in there, like uh, Letting Go. I think uh, back on the, on the current set. Sorry, don't give out any spoilers there for anyone who's not seen anyone on the tour. But I mean, a few years ago, for the 2007 tour, we were having Love Circles live. It was an absolute joy to hear that one. And, and Chris was playing that. His, I remember hearing that at a solo gig in, a, in Maidstone in 2005 at Pizza Express. He surprised us all by playing Love Circles. Um, so you do occasionally get that. That's the thing about Squeeze. The back catalogue is so big, they can just pick out these you know, fairly random songs like um, just on the Food for Thought EP, we've got the new version of the very, you know, the very first dance. I mean, I never, never thought that would ever make any sort of reappearance, but here we are. Right, and they have that ability to just transform, um, you know, something that maybe it wouldn't have gone over too well. And in the case of Frank, I know for sure that if people don't know this, the first song, If It's Love, here's the single. It's fantastic. It's got a cute little video a la Hourglass. But on the reissue, you get to hear Glenn's demo 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, interestingly titled, If I'm Dead. <laughs> and just literally, listeners out there, it's literally like substituting if it's love with if I'm dead. And it's it's like almost hysterical. What are, what are your thoughts on it? it? It's a creepy song, that one, If I'm Dead, isn't it? It's this very sort of sweet, bittersweet chord sequence. It's a very positive um power pop chord sequence uh sets this sort of creepy music box sound with lots of reverb lots of delay um we you got some sort of glenn glenn singing about imagining yeah if if he was dead um and what the consequences of that would be it's it's an it's an unsettling song i uh i remember sort of playing it to a friend many years ago when the when the remastered frank came out and i was like yeah well, what do you think of this and i mean she had no idea that it became if it's love you know because it's just it's almost an, it's a night and day song isn't it night and day song between if it's love and and if i'm did i'm really glad we end up with if it's love which is obviously very very nice uh sweet song with a, with, with a choir um with or three people <laughs> um in it and that cute little video where they've got that sort of house set up isn't it and they've got they're all sort of doing different things in different rooms haven't you You've got chris sort of pretending to be like a father figure i think with his pipe um, and uh, Gilson being sort of a painter and, and, and decorator. I haven't seen the video for a while, so try to remember it. In, in, and uh, Jules, of course, being an artist, I think. When, did he write Hot Banana Love Room in there or something like that at some point? I'm, I may be misremembering that. <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah, I think he was also designs of being like a French artist or something. Uh, yeah. But it's um, it's so interesting now to think about it. It's, it's so, um, it really does set you at, back a little ways when you come up with things like, um, you know, uh, like Who's That, which again is like a demo-ish kind of thing that it's it's got some ethereal, but um, you know what's even a better word? It's got like this cathedral uh, mm. uh sort of vibe to it um almost like the long and winding road um where you're not getting any answers because uh glenn is you know questioning nearly in every single line in that song but it's just gorgeous it's just so in um like an angelical church kind of feeling how do you do, do you get that vibe um i feel with that song it's like i think of that as like a sunday pub sing-along song so I always sort of had this vision when I hear it of, of Glenn sort of being in, in the corner of some pub in, in Greenwich. Uh, we're back to Greenwich again, um, playing along this sort of song that's got a very Sunday afternoon uh, sort of laid back vibe to it where, where you yeah, say you've got these sort of rhetorical questions, um, kind of a lot of imagery again in there, you know, who's that drinking all the Daniels, um, who's that, you know, uh, singing or laughing in the rain. Um, bit, but I can see that sort of almost, yeah, sort of slight, uh, sort of, yeah, sort of slight church sound to it, isn't it? Like um, the chord sequence is like something, yeah, would sound really good, like on a church organ, I think. Agree, definitely on that on that point. It's just um, the sort of cadence um, that he has on that. I can. And it's it's interesting that you say it's, it has to be on a Sunday. You know? <laughs> yes. It's, uh, you know, it can't be some gregarious, let's go and have a few pints down at the pub yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. it's, maybe those guys are doing the pints, but Glenn's sitting back, you know, playing this song on the piano or something. And he's kind of very being very introverted about, you know, life. You know, it's very existential. You know, if I can you be existential at a pub? I'm not sure. I think you can. After, I think you can after a few pints. We've all, we've all questioned the meaning of life after you've had one too many in a pub. 
Okay. All right. Yeah. So there, 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 there's something there to be said for that. But um, you were kind of correct about, to go back to Rose, I said, seeing them re- perform that song in rehearsal, it's just, they just knocked it out. And it, there, there wasn't almost any thought to it. It just happened. It just rolled right out. And maybe that's because they couldn't, they can do that sort of stuff. But like you said, it seems like it's couched in a lot of things that we were unaware of back then. And we wish, don't you wish you could go back in time and say, guys, this is a great album. Please don't forget. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Don't you wish you could say some cards? Uh, yeah. Just preserve this, this great vibe that you've got going on. And, you know, uh, would you believe it uh, about, well, 20, 30 years time, there are going to be people speaking about it on podcast, reminiscing about this album, um, going to detail about it and just going about how great it is. Because it does come up quite a lot as a lot of Squeeze fans' favourite album, this one I know. It's been sort of saying, what's your favourite album? It tends to be, um, I think you hear some fantastic place a lot, but I, I hear Frank a lot. And it's definitely my f- favourite album by, uh, by Country Mile. Out of, and I love anything and everything they've done. And so this is this is you know, this is superhuman levels of love towards this album. And also, like you mentioned previously, maybe you can speak to it from the UK point that, yeah, it's great. It, it's it's streamable now in this day and age. And of course, you could get it with the little extra bits in 2007. But like you said, maybe, um, you know, discuss that with me here because of it sort of being felt like it just fell off the edge of the world with the rocks and water it's really difficult to find, but now there's like this resurgence of cassettes and vinyl. I just went to a website and somebody wanted to sell the vinyl version of this for like $60. Wow. <laughs> well, uh, the great thing is now that you can just think of a squeeze song and most of the time you'll be able to find it online. Uh, so like when, when, when I'm, when I'm out, cycling it's usually frank i like to listen to um and i just sort of some but sometimes i think i just want to listen to like you know something like uh, the other day i wanted to listen to vanity fair but the uh the, the demo version that's the b-side to if it's love which is the the very unusual sort of piano and bass arrangement um and you just go i can just get that now you know uh, and i don't have to sort of go and traipse about through record shops trying to find it but sometimes that was the fun i can just remember the absolute joy you'd get when you'd go to record shops and you'd look you know i'd always straight go towards the the s section and you'd see these other bands around them that you, that, that you know we always associate with squeeze like squirrel nut zippers never heard of them other than seeing them sort of next to squeeze in in record shops and you see bruce springsteen you know squeezes there and you you'd see a little bundle of cds and you think please be something that i haven't got and occasionally you'd find something really special like uh you know like there was a I managed to get one, say, like a gold remaster of East Side Story. Um, that, that, that Glenn himself was like, "Where did you find this?" Um, and that was actually, uh, it, uh, I actually got it in a HMV store in, in Singapore when I was on holiday there, but when I was a teenager. Um, so there's just this real excitement about about finding some of these hours. Whereas now you don't really get them, but you, you do get these sort of instant gratifications. Didn't you go, oh, "I'm going to, I'm going to find this song"? But I, I think the squeeze, the the frustration I get is when you can't find some of the B sides. Um, things like Splitting Into Three, uh, which is obviously a fantastic B-side from the Babylon and On era. Uh, I think there's a video of it on YouTube, but, you know, sometimes you're out. You just want, you just want to play – sometimes you, I just want to play Splitting Into Three to people who don't really know Squeeze. So I've listened to this great song. 
because uh, inevitably it's one of the songs that people always end up liking going oh that's, that's a you know, that's a great song um but, but you can't find it but i do know that you can get um you can of course get frank the remastered edition which has all those um bonus tracks all all of them are fantastic all the all the added tracks i mean i think the, the standout one for me though has got to be red light i absolutely love that song and I'll also just kick in here as an aside, too, that it's it's not directly connected, but somewhat, as I was mentioning, Robin Hitchcock, around that same time period, um, because they were kind of sharing from Babylon and on a little bit more into the um, Frank era, they were sharing um, Andy Metcalf, who was kind of supplying second keyboard duties along with Jules. Um, and it was interesting to see that Glenn went and uh, sang some harmony vocals with Robin on his song that's called, uh, what was it called? Beetle Dennis. Um, right. <laughs> it was just, and it's wonderful, you know, because he had done that so long ago with Elvis uh, Costello. But like you said, there's just like these little blips that you would like to get. Like I, I, I look at the marketing standpoint and, you know, you got to give credit a little bit on the A&M side for partaking into the techno technology of the, the sort of um, novelty of those little three inch CDs, which I did get at the time. I don't know where they are now. And I probably didn't keep them because they were such a novelty. You can't play them anymore. Um, so there was a little bit of that. There was a little bit of trying to help the band uh, keep, keep face with the uh you know trying something new uh keep them keep them busy as far as being in the the eye of the 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 public uh consuming you know by being able to buy various versions of their stuff so you know they were ahead of their time weren't they i think so yeah trying trying to make things uh stand out back in those days you had to sort of do i think the word i might use a bit unkindly is, is be a bit gimmicky at times so you had to yeah do those do those three inch cds put some strange uh perhaps choices of cover versions things like red light which is a you know a, a very uh unique kind of cover version perhaps put a you know a new version of uh vanity fair that's just a a, a, a bass and piano so that people go super still realize that squeeze are there and that they're still relevant still making records uh, and at the time the vh1 did that frankly speaking documentary so they're, they're definitely something there to kind of keep keep squeeze going and, and keep them keeping the public eye. I don't don't feel feel that it was enough of course and that's reflected in the the very poor uh positions of of the albums and, and, and the singles which I don't think I'm, I'm I might be wrong here uh someone might email and say I'm wrong but uh, I don't think either the singles actually charted and I think uh, the album frankly got I think number 51 in the UK, in number 113 on the Billboard 200. I don't know. I know there's Billboard 100. I didn't know there's Billboard 200. Um, uh, and, you know, after then, so they sort of sank um, and and went away for a few years. And, uh, um, you know, it well, wasn't until Play um, came back, wasn't it, which was on a different record label, um, Reprise, was it Warner Reprise, who then dropped them again. Um, oh, man, it must have been really devastating time in the band. Um, to just see yourselves, you know, on these on these labels that perhaps have these other artists who are getting lots of promotion, like the Police, you know, who've always been, you know, sort of similar to Squeeze, um, you know, musically and, and, and image wise, um, getting all the getting all the all the plaudits, and and then sort of saying not 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 really getting much. It's been really tough for Squeeze at that time. 
And it also seemed around that time, too, that uh, before Frank came out, and I will have to go back and check my dates, but at that time, uh, it seemed like it was more like a homemade, do-it-yourself kind of uh, pre- album tour where Chris and Glenn went out and did an acoustic tour. They came to the States and I saw them on that tour. And, and, and Glenn does this whole promotion thing that I was able to go to at one of the rock stations uh, where he just, you know, played and talked about it. And then later that night, uh, Chris and Glenn had their, you know, their little gig. So they were still in that mindset of, well, it, it, I mean, this could be totally wrong. Like you said, we could be totally way off on this with, with the promotion and who was going to take them places and what were they going to do to get this album in the, in the face of the public or the people that they knew were going to be able to buy this. And I think that that was also another big problem because they played a very small club. And the audiences there were at that time, my age and a little bit older. So we're talking between the ages of say like 25 to 35, 40 at that time back in like 89. So you do have this weird dichotomy of, well, we should be selling them as the college crowd is the one who should be getting it because now we've decided they're alternative, but really they're not, (laughs) you know, they're, they're, they're still very mature individuals who have a lot to say. And and that was, I guess, you and I would agree that in hindsight, that's that was the sad part of it all. Yeah, it was. It's a shame that they never sort of tried to uh, market squeeze to much more of a, of a mass audience. I mean, nowadays, you go to squeeze gigs and there are lots of younger people. Um, I remember sort of going on the, the first sort of domino, the, the domino tour. Um, and that stage, I was 16. Um, and I was, it was uh, quite unusual to see someone of my age there. I don't recall anyone sort of uh, in, in their teens at the time. And I remember even, uh, I think, uh, Chris Difford being quite surprised that, that someone so young was, was that much into Squeeze. Because I suppose it's because a lot of their lyrics uh, themes are, are quite mature. You know, I'm, uh, I'm in my 40s now uh, and I get a lot more of their lyrics now when I listen to them and I sort of understand them and sort of empathise them a lot. But I suppose when you're... A, a teenager and listen to something like um i don't know maybe something like letting go um it doesn't you you, you know you can appreciate that that tune and 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 you can sort of see the the craft of the words but you can't really feel it as much as you as you would do perhaps when you're you're a little bit older and you've got a bit more kind of life experience but but it is it is good to see um that squeeze do have this you know i think it's, it feels like quite a recent phenomenon certainly in the, uh, in the uk that uh you know they've got this sort of appeal to to, to younger people um, i'm very pleased to say that my uh my five-year-old son uh absolutely loves squeeze i'm not sure he has much of a choice to listen to them but he, he particularly likes um Annie get your gun and, and call for cats which are really good choices and obviously fantastic taste in music um yeah. that that you cannot dispute and the good thing is is that they're they're still here we we've been talking you know for the past you know hour or so about these ups and downs and being able to rescue them from the from the cliffs you know before they actually fell over and disappeared and for some reason i would say that probably past the um you know, 91, 92, 93. And then it was probably a good thing around Domino that they just had to stop because if they had continued on, it really would have been a drag. Um, it, ju- it just could have gone really, really awful. And I think that's what we appreciate now 
about what they're doing and being so relevant in this day and age, but also being able to go back and introduce uh, recording like Frank to people who don't necessarily have to be introduced to them through singles because that's such a small, small chip in the in the stone of of what squeeze can offer you know they have a they have like a massive volcano size back catalog and also the new stuff and we need to keep that kind of that we need to keep that ball rolling if if i can did i did i mix up a bunch of metaphors (laughs) (laughs) but if um you know if we're here to say you know Let's go forward with being able to somehow give Frank um, uh, a much needed, you know, kick in the pants, try and cast aside, um, you know, what was going on in the background. And I'm, and I'm sure a lot of people don't realize that, but, you know, note, note, note the importance of the songs and how they are still relevant because we're here 30 plus years later talking about this album, how it still kicks, um, and and how we much we enjoy because we wouldn't be spending all this time talking about it, you know? The album hasn't dated at all, has it? It is still fresh and relevant today, uh, as I imagine it would have been back in, uh, back in 1989, back in uh, August 1989, I think, when it was released. Um, so yeah, it's great to be able to yeah introduce um, new generations to Squeeze um, and, and keep them going. And, and that's just, you know, you can see how much their popularity has exploded there. You know, they're doing these huge tours. They are on uh, primetime television here in the UK very often. Um, you know, they're, they're, on, they're on my local TV uh, a couple of days ago I saw. You know, they're sort of household, almost household names here now. It's almost like they've, they had that perhaps um, around probably when they did Call for Cats, when I was doing Call for Cats and not Junction, both two number twos in a row back when, uh, you know the charts were were a lot lot more relevant than they are today. I mean, I couldn't name um, many on the top ten today, um, but you know back back then those charts had a real importance. Whereas now it's not it's not really that important. Now people can you know can, can get that instant gratification and go oh you know well you know you've been in a shop somewhere and you hear a hear a, hear an interesting song you'll shazam it and you go oh that's that's good you know and then you can by the time you leave the store you listen to it you can get the great sits out of that particular artist. Um, so now it's great to be able to say, look, oh, you, you know, I send them over, send over squeeze songs to to friends occasionally, um, to to try and evangelise about how great this band. I'm sure they must be fed up a bit now, um, but you know, it's great. It's great to to just be in the car sometimes and, and play like an album, like um, Frank or or I think something like Ridiculous is a good album to introduce someone to. Or you can go, of course, like you said, the greatest hits and the, and the singles, forty fives and under compilation um, or one of the many many other compilations that have come out throughout the years um, and say someone that you know listen to this see, see see what you think um you know and just sort of you know i think most people who aren't sort of even hardcore squeeze fans like you and i would you know be able to at least hear one squeeze song and and, and really like them and, and i can always name a lot of my friends and family because i go all right they like that song like, you know, I know someone who likes his favourite song is Hourglass. So, you know, it's like my son's favourite is Only Get Your Gun. My my other son's sort of favourite one is like Up the Junction. You, you, it's just, they're brilliant. Their appeal just goes on and on. And, it's, you know, we're not far off 50 years of Squeeze now, are we? Uh, I think it's next year. Um, we'll be 50 years, five decades. And, you know, I still, I still in my head think we're at the domino phase where, you know, we're, 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 we're still 
there's still loads more Squeeze albums to come. I can remember actually being absolutely devastated when they split up at the Domino stage because I, I was I just uh, I just got into Squeeze at that stage and I'd just gone out and bought every single Squeeze album, anything I could find, and I sort of had this sort of growing collection. And I went and saw saw them many many times around that time. So I was at some places like at, at the Paradise Bar. I remember seeing Squeeze, um, which is just down the road from the Chocolate Factory, where of course Frank was recorded, um, and then seeing them at sort of little. Uh, places all, all sort of around South East England uh, and London, and then and then seeing them split up uh, and just being oh no, how devastated that I've got this band that I'm absolutely crazy about, and I'm not going to be able to see them live, and I just rely on things like around and about um, and, and uh, the odd bootleg <laughs> that that uh, another squeeze fan would be kind enough for me to send. So we had this little drought in between, and and it wasn't until obviously 2007. And I was very lucky to be at that gig that was at the Deptford Albany Empire, so the first, very, very, very first Squeeze gig of the new Squeeze. Um, and, and hearing the intro to Take Me Yours, hearing that sort of synth, synth um, sample will be a moment I will never forget for the rest of my life. Just feeling Squeeze back, you know, our, we've got our Squeeze back. It was absolutely brilliant. I know, and I, I absolutely feel the same way you do coming, you know, from the States. And like I say, I'm happy that, you know, you took time out to to talk about this and and enthuse so much about, you know, a release and a band that thankfully, like you said, we we have got them back. We are not gonna let them go. And we are gonna continue to to promote um at any uh juncture we can um the you know the the beauty of, of this band, their lyrics, their music their everything. So Adrian, thank you so, so much for, for sitting down and talking with us. I really, really appreciate it. It's been an absolute pleasure, Amy. There's, there's one of my favorite things in life is yeah, talking about squeeze uh, and, and being able to talk in, in a granular detail about some, some parts of my favorite album has, has been, has been absolutely brilliant. I've really enjoyed it. 